following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 14. Let's begin by reading the text together. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Jesus speaking. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am... There you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. In 1955, Jack Finney wrote a short fictional story entitled, Of Missing Persons. It tells the story of a burned out banker named Charlie. This man had no close friends or family. He lived by himself and he was weary of the daily grind. He met a man who told him about the Acme Travel Bureau. Excuse me. The Acme Travel Bureau was a small travel agency located in the city. He was instructed to go in and tell the owner that he wanted to escape from the troubles of this earth. Charlie followed these instructions, and when he walked in, the owner assessed him briefly and then showed him a brochure he had made as a joke for a supposedly fictional planet called Verna. It's an idyllic and peaceful place, much like we would picture an island paradise. In fact, as Charlie looked around, there are pictures all over the wall of people that were in Verna playing, laughing, enjoying themselves, having a great time. The man said there are Acme travel agencies in cities all over the world. And people from all walks of life have moved to Verna. Well, after a bit more conversation, Charlie asked him, when does this stop being a joke? To which the man answered, now, if you wanted to. Charlie asked, how much does a ticket cost? The man said, everything you have. Charlie pulled out $11.17, all that he had in his pocket. When he questioned the price, the proprietor said that identical tickets had sold for as much as $3,700 and as little as six cents. Charlie accepted and was given a one-way bus ticket with directions to the Acme bus station. He boarded an old, dilapidated bus and with nothing but the clothes on his back, sat down next to a handful of other non-impressive, ordinary-looking people, and after a long ride to the middle of nowhere, was dropped off in a rural and unpopulated area. In front of him stood an old, rustic barn, and he, along with the other passengers, were told to go into the barn and wait for departure to Verna. Once inside, the door was closed from the outside, and before long, he heard the bus start and then drive away, fading into the distance, leaving them alone. Each of those people had given up their jobs, their future, all that they had, and there they sat, waiting for a better life. And in the growing silence, Charlie began to think, is this real? Is this right? Or have I been taken advantage of? 
What am I even doing here? He thought. I think it's a fair representation of our Christian lives. We too have been given the promise of a better life, a place where our problems will disappear. We've been given the hope of living in an idyllic paradise far from the troubles of this world. Sometimes the Christian life, however, is like riding that bus or sitting in that barn, and in the quietness of our own hearts, we begin to question, is this real? Is this right? Or is this some manufactured story designed to distract me from the real problems in my life? We read God's promises. We do our best to hold on to them. While at the very same time, we're confronted with our less than perfect lives. And certainly there are times where the sun is shining and everything seems to go our way. But there are also times when there's no wind in the sails and the hits just keep on coming. Job 5, verse 7, Job says, Man is born for trouble in the same way that sparks fly upward from a fire. Jesus said in John 16, 33, In the world you will have tribulation. Many are carrying burdens. You walked in this morning with a smile on your face, a polite hello to the people around you, but you're barely hanging on. Uh, for some, even if the water's up right now, we don't have to go very far, do we, to find the most recent trial in our lives? A breakup, an ER visit, a miscarriage, re- relational turmoil, some unexpected layoff at work. Sometimes this pain is dull and aching, like a rebellious child, uh, a chronic health issue, the prolonged pain of loss, or the feeling of regret and failure that just gnaws away at your mind. Life has thrown you a curveball, and the weight of the world is on your shoulders, filling you with anxiety of present worries and future what-ifs. It was this same type of trouble that was brewing in the hearts of the disciples in John 14. There, we find them in the upper room. Jesus, at the end of 13, has just announced that he is leaving. Judas has just gotten up from his seat at the table to go betray Jesus. Peter has just been told that before the sun comes up, he will deny Jesus three times. Within 12 hours of this moment, Jesus would be arrested, he would be tried, and he would be hanging on a cross. And so knowing their struggles, Jesus says to them, look back at your Bibles in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. That word trouble can be defined as acute emotional distress. It's to be unsettled. It's to be stirred up internally. Have you experienced an unsettling event recently in your life? Finances tightening up? Boss made that comment. You discovered a lump. Have you experienced acute emotional distress? Marriage on the rocks? Loss of a loved one? Long, sleepless nights? Lingering pain. It's what one author calls the dark night of the soul. In such times as these, Jesus gives instruction. Verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. It's a prohibitive command. If we flipped it on its back, you could translate it this way. Set your heart at ease. As always, 
Our Savior desires to give comfort to his people, to ease our trouble and to settle our souls. And this chapter and this section is no exception. He tells us where we can find comfort in the difficult times in life. And as we walk through these six verses, there's one phrase that I'd like you to remember that we will build everything around, and it's this. Comfort comes from Christ. Comfort comes from Christ. And in this little outline, as we walk through, we're going to see three ways that Jesus provides comfort in times of trouble. Our outline will be in the first person. If Jesus is speaking, he will say, I can be trusted. He will say, I keep my promises. And he will say, I answer life's greatest questions. And in these three things, we will see that comfort comes from Christ. Let's dive in. Point number one, I can be trusted. I can be trusted. Look back there at the first verse. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You've got back-to-back-to-back imperatives here. Do not be troubled is the first. Believe and believe are the second and the third. When your heart is troubled, he's saying, when times are tough, believe in God. Have faith. Trust him. (laughs) The instruction is simple. Believe in God and believe also in me. You could say, you believe in God, Jesus is saying, believe at the same time in me. The same faith you have in him can be rightly placed on me, Jesus says. We are one and the same. Jesus is the personification of God himself. Now you'll notice in this text that Jesus does not elaborate on why. He doesn't tell us why we should believe. He just says believed. And I would submit to you that the disciples already knew why they should believe and trust God. And I would submit to you that you and I as Christians also know why we should trust God. But with your permission, I'd like to come out of this text for just a minute and tell you why God can be trusted, and I believe this will bear fruit in our lives. The question we answer here is, what is it about the character of our Savior, of our God, that helps us to trust him, and I'd like to call out just four things, and they're all attributes of God. The first is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That is to say that he is in control of everything. In Job 42, verse 2, Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no plans of yours can be thwarted. In Daniel 4, 35, Daniel said, no one can stop his hand. In Jeremiah 32, 17, Jeremiah said nothing is too difficult for him. And in Isaiah 14, 27, Isaiah said, who can frustrate the hand of God? Implied answer, no one. Jerry Bridges said, if there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. His love may be infinite, but if his power is limited and his purpose can be thwarted, then we cannot trust him, end quote. But friend, every molecule in this universe is under his control and functions according to his plan. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And so we, in times of trouble, take great comfort and choose to trust him because he is sovereign. Secondly, we could say that God is good. Not only is he sovereign, but he's also good. In Genesis 1.31, it says that his creation is good. In Psalm 119.39, it says that his word is good. 
In Romans 12, 2, it says that his will is good. James 1, 17 says that his gifts are good. And because of all this, in Psalm 34, 8, we are encouraged to taste and to see that the Lord is good. What a great truth this is. God's sovereign rule is governed by his goodness. And it's not a sprinkle of good. It's not a dash of good. It's not a passing inclination for good. This is a goodness that is rooted in the eternal nature of God himself. This is who he is. This is what he does. One author said, in God, there is an infinite ocean of good. His words towards us are good and only good. His actions towards us are good and only good. And he can be trusted because he is good. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 says? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so in our darkest hour, we can trust him because we know that a good God is working all things together for our good. So he's sovereign, he's good. Third, he's wise. God is wise. Now our wisdom is limited to our education and to our experience. We cannot predict the future any more than we can control it. And so we're prone to miscalculation, to misjudgments, and to making mistakes. But God never makes mistakes. And he never needs a mulligan. There are no do-overs with the Almighty. All his ways are perfect and all of his plans are right. Psalm 147.5 says that his understanding is infinite. And so we trust a wise God. A.W. Pink said, God is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Christian, God knows the hairs on your head. He has kept every one of your tears in his bottle. He has numbered all of your days. He is intimately acquainted with all of your ways. You have not been forgotten about. He has a plan for your life. And no disease, no death, no broken heart, or anything else is outside of his wise plan for you. And so God can be trusted because he's sovereign, and because he's good, and because he's wise. And if I complete the picture, I'll give you just one more. God can be trusted because he is love. God is love. One author said, it is not just that God loves, but that he is love itself. Love is not merely one of his attributes, but his very nature. And so God loves fully. He loves selflessly. He loves eternally, and he loves infinitely. Very highbrow reading, the Jesus Storybook Bible, describes God's love like this. It is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. No matter what circumstances of life, in sickness and in health, in pain and in joy, in youth and in old age, in prosper and in want, the love of God is fixed upon his children's, his children. Ephesians 2.4 calls it a great love. Ephesians 3.19 says that his love surpasses understanding. 1 John 4.18 says that when it's in our heart, it drives out fear. And Romans 8.39 declares that there is nothing in this universe that can separate us from the love of Christ. And the greatest demonstration of this love is seen in Romans 5, verse 8. 
He demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see that God is sovereign, that he is good, that he is wise, and that he is love. And so come back with me to John 14. In the midst of your trouble, when your heart is bubbling over with fear and anxiety, Jesus enters and he says, I can be trusted. When we're at our lowest, God is there. When the walls around us crumble, he is our foundation. When the darkness will not lift, he is our light. When our heart fails, he is our strength. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. And when we're falling apart and we can't figure out what God is doing in our life, we cry out like Job did in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Driving this point home, Charles Spurgeon once said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. That's a good word. Would you do me a favor and open your Bibles to Isaiah 43? I want to show you these three verses that are so precious to God's children in their distress. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched nor will the flame burn you. Verse three, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Wow, I love that. In your emotional distress, from your desperate state, when the road ahead is unclear, Jesus says, I can be trusted. And so in that moment, he, he desires to bring comfort. And I'll say it again, comfort comes from Christ. Not only can Jesus be trusted, but secondly, in your outline, he says, I keep my promises. Yes, I can be trusted. Secondly, I keep my promises. Now, what's the promise that he makes in these verses? Let me read verses two and three again and see if you can find it. There's a couple, but I'm going to summarize it down to just one word, see if you can get it. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That one word summary is the word heaven. The promise is heaven. The guarantee is unmistakable. Yes, I am leaving, but I will come back. That's part of the promise, and I will bring you to heaven. This verse tells us, or these verses tell us three things about heaven I'd like to give them to you first. Heaven is glorious. Heaven is glorious. Now look back at verse two, and I find this in that phrase, in my Father's house. In my Father's house. This is, now, you'll notice Jesus in John two, when he cleansed the temple, he called the temple my Father's house. But this is not a reference to the earthly temple. This is a reference to the eternal abode and dwelling place of God in heaven. Now to illustrate this, many of you are familiar with Warren Buffett, yes? Yes, the Oracle of Omaha, as he's called. 92 years old, still going strong. He filed his first tax return when he was 14 years old. 
from his uh, newspaper delivery business. He's the fifth richest man in the world, something around $100 billion. But he's lived a modest lifestyle considering that net worth. I was watching the, the Boston Celtics game last night. That was unbelievable. But in, the, in the, these playoffs, they always focus on the people on the floor that are these movie stars or athletes or singers or whatever, and they're all decked out trying to broadcast their wealth and their position, living as if they're kings. Here's Warren Buffett. He's worth $105 billion. Uh, multiple times a week, he goes to McDonald's for breakfast on his way to work. In 2017, there was a documentary about him. And he said this, quote, $3.17 is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. But the market's down this morning, so I'll pass up the $3.17 and go with the sausage, egg, and cheese for $2.95, end quote. He once took his friend Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, another billionaire, to lunch. They went to McDonald's. When it was time to pay, he pulled out his wallet and also pulled out coupons that he had clipped to pay for lunch. He bought his first house, a moderate house, a starter house, in 1958 for $31,000. If we were to put in today's um, inflation rates, et cetera, it'd be like us walking out the door and buying a house for about $330,000. Okay, to give you an idea of where it is, he still lives there. He still lives there. There's nothing about it that says that a billionaire lives here. There's nothing about where he lives that shows off who he is and his wealth. This is not the case with God. The house of God, the dwelling place of God, is comparable to the glorious nature of God. Now, what do we know about God's house? In Hebrews 11, it's described as a country, talking about its size. In Hebrews 12, it's talked about a city, talking about its number of inhabitants. In 2 Timothy 4, it's talked about a kingdom. And the dominant image in the Bible about this kingdom is in the center of it, there is a throne. In Revelation 20, 11, it is called a great white throne. In Revelation 4, 3, it says that there is an emerald rainbow that radiates from it. Referred to often in Scripture in both the Old and the New Testament, this is a throne which both executes judgment and dispenses grace. Seated on the throne is the creator, the almighty God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is surrounded by countless angels who protect his holiness and guard the way to his presence. Isaiah 6, there's a vision, and we see those closest to him flying around the throne, protecting themselves with wings as they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Day and night they call this out. They say the whole earth is full of his glory. Paul describes heaven as a paradise in 2 Corinthians 12, 4. And the author of Hebrews calls it a place of eternal rest in Hebrews chapter 4. In the Father's house, there are no tears, no sorrow, no pain, and no death. There is no sin. There are no wicked people. There is no darkness. Revelation 21 describes it as a place that has no need for the sun or for the moon, for the glory of God provides its light. And while heaven is a place of eternal rest for believers, it's not a place of harps and clouds and halos. 
Heaven, the boring place we go to sit and strum on something for eternity, sitting on a cloud. It is a lie while all of our friends are down in hell partying. This is despicable. <clears throat> David said in Psalm, <clears throat> excuse me, David said in Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In 1 Corinthians 2:9, it says, Things which eye has not seen. An ear has not heard, which have not even entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. Make no mistake, heaven is a glorious place. Secondly, heaven has room, even for me. Heaven has room, even for me. Verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Look back at that phrase, many dwelling places in verse 2. It carries the idea of an extended household. Some would grow, sons would grow up, get married, and would add their own dwelling onto the house. In my little pea brain mind, it's like the hamster that I had when I was a kid, that you had the one big room with the wheel going around and had the water bottle in the food area, and then it had all these little tunnels, these little pipes that went off to separate little rooms. I'm the only one. Um, <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Okay. But it's, this is similar with the Father's um, dwelling. It's centrally located, and the overall house will become more and more expansive going out. The idea is that it is a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play. F- you obviously... It's a song, Audio Adrenaline. I looked it up yesterday, 1993. So if you didn't get the reference, that's why. (laughs) But look back there at verse 2. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place. I go to prepare a place. Uh, Does this mean that Jesus has a hammer and some nails? And for the past 2,000 years, he's been building, working on our forever home? Uh, I submit to you again that This preparation is not about construction, although construction can be slow. I mean, it takes more than 10 years just to get a tent up in Wildemar, right? I mean, I don't get it. And maybe the permits in heaven are even slower. I have no idea. But this is not about construction. The preparation referred to is the betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. To prepare the way, he removes all barriers of sin between man and God, making it possible for us to enter into the presence of holiness. In heaven, he appears as our high priest mediating for us. And day and night, he intercedes for us at the throne. This is the preparation. Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. He didn't go into an earthly temple. A mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. I want you to notice the last two words of verse 2. For you. The place Jesus is preparing is for you. He says it to these men who had just been arguing over who was the greatest while he was washing their feet who would sleep while he sweat great drops of blood, who would abandon him to save their own lives, and who would in just short while deny him, 
There is room for every son and daughter of Adam marred by the fall. For all who have come short of God's holiness, who have attacked his sovereignty, questioned his goodness, doubted his love, and worshipped other gods. Those who continue in the same old sins, shameful sins, hidden sins, repeated sins, our favorite sins. He goes, verse 2 says, to prepare a place for you. The wonder of heaven is not that, oh, wow, I can't believe he made it. Oh, sweet, she's here. That's awesome. No, the wonder of heaven will be, I, I cannot believe that I'm here. I cannot believe that this undeserving, unworthy sinner is now here. Martin Luther described this text saying, it is the best and most consoling sermon that the Lord Christ delivered on earth. In Psalm 23, verse 6, David said, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But mark this, he does not say I prepare a place for all. No, he says it is for you, for his children, for his followers, for those who believe, who by faith have come to the Savior. Christian, rejoice, for there is room in heaven even for you. Next, heaven is intimate. Heaven is intimate. Moving on to verse three, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, <clears throat> I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus came once as the suffering servant, bowed low in humility. He is coming again in the fullness of glory. Jesus Christ is the darling of heaven, <clears throat> excuse me, the center of worship and praise. And he will take his place at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3 says, and every eye shall see him. And every knee shall bow. And Philippians 2 tells us that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Adding to this, in Revelation 5.11, around the throne, the central point of heaven, there is gathered many, and this is a future-looking eschatological perspective, and John says, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands. It is countless. It is everywhere. It is more than you can imagine. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All of heaven focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ and rightly so. But look back at verse three. Jesus, ever gentle, ever lowly, says, I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Not relegated to some corner of heaven. We don't squeeze in just on the other side of the gates before the door closes. To that thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus in Luke 23, he said, Today you will be with me in paradise, by my side, in my presence. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. 
Revelation 22, 4 says that we will see his face. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says that we will always be with the Lord. It is an intimate promise. We will be with Christ. A.W. Pink writes, that which makes heaven attractive to the believer is not that heaven is a place where we shall be delivered from all sorrow and suffering, nor is it that heaven is the place where we shall meet again those we loved, nor is it that heaven is the place of golden streets and pearly gates. Those things are all true. However, he says, no, it is Christ that the heart of the believer longs for. Don't you see it, Christian? Don't you see it, even if just for a moment, as the clouds are parted and everything becomes clear, as Jesus' words ring forward, just for a moment, all of your troubles, he says, lift your troubles and put your eyes back onto the Savior and recognize that these momentary light afflictions are producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In the midst of our trials, in our difficulties, in our troubles, Jesus says, I am coming back. And I'm going to bring you home. On December 8th, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed, Japan invaded the Philippines. General Douglas MacArthur, who was over that area of the Pacific Rim, fought valiantly to save the Filipinos, but was quickly ordered by President Roosevelt to abandon his post and head to Australia so he could do um, other things, and they were going to let the Philippines go. He left behind 90,000 troops who lacked food, supplies, and support, and they quickly succumbed to the advancing army. Deeply disappointed, he issued a statement to the press, three words, I shall return. For the next two years, this statement became his mantra, often repeated during his public appearances. He would rally support in Washington, he would launch offensive attacks, always with the aim of moving closer and back to the Philippines. And then the day finally came. He was given the order, and his forces advanced into the Philippine Islands. He waded ashore a few hours later and made a radio broadcast. People of the Philippines, I have returned. So it is with our Savior. He left his men. He endured the cross. He waded across the icy river of death and he rose victorious. But he made a promise to them and he made a promise to you. He said, I shall return. And so he will. It is a guarantee. You can take it to the bank. Jesus keeps his promises. With all power and might and all his glory, he will come back to his people and he will bring us home. And so in the midst of our troubles, comfort comes from Christ because he can be trusted and because he always keeps his promises. And that takes us to our third and final point. Jesus says, I answer life's greatest question. I answer life's greatest question. Verse four. He says to them, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Notice it's not Peter who speaks. He's still stunned into silence at the last few verses of chapter 13 when he's told he's going to deny Christ. And so enters Thomas. He's mentioned three times in this gospel. He's utterly honest, 
uninhibited, anxious, even a little pessimistic. He has a certain cerebral intellectualism that must understand. Maybe you're like Thomas, a deep thinker, an overanalyzer, glass is half empty, prone to doubt, you see the problems first. He represents all believers who in the midst of trouble are discouraged and unable to see the laid out plan of God question his promises. He's literally asking for a roadmap. How do we get there? And we call him Doubting Thomas. And we look down on him. But friend, is this not your heart sometimes? In your trouble? In your lack of knowledge? In your inability to see the greater plan of God? Do you not doubt also? Do you not get anxious? Do you not allow trouble to fill your heart? Have we not all been there? In verse 5, He asks life's greatest question. You see it there? How do we know the way? How do we know the way? Blaise Pasquale said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God, the creator. That's the longing of every human heart and Jesus answered it in verse six. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Greatest question, how can a sinful man be made right with the holy God? How do we get from here to there? What is the mechanism, the means? Jesus' statement here is declarative. It is authoritative. It is exclusive. In one sentence, Jesus shatters the worldview of most people on this planet today. It is not your good deeds. It is not your religion. It is not your moral accomplishments that makes you right with God. It is through Christ alone. Jim Boyce said there are many offensive things about Christianity, at least for some people. But the chief offense of Christianity is its founder and his extraordinary claims. That is true. Now this is the sixth of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. These are direct references to the deity of Christ. It goes all the way back to Exodus 3. Moses has taken his shoes off. He's standing on holy ground. There's a bush in front of him. It's burning and it's not going anywhere. And God sends him back to Egypt to deliver his people. And Moses says, who shall I say is sending me? And God answers from the burning bush, tell them I am has sent you. There are three parts to this claim. The way, the truth, and the life. Notice first in this that each is preceded by the word the. They are definite articles. There's no room for ambiguity. Notice next the word and, separating these phrases, putting them on equal ground. While the way precedes the truth and the life, it does not put either of them in a lesser position. Let's look at these three in turn. First, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Is this not the simple teaching of the Bible? There is one and only one way to God. Certainly this is not what the world around us believes. Oprah Winfrey once said, quote, one of the mistakes that human beings make is that there is only one way to live. But there are many paths to what you call God. Her loving and her kindness and her generosity, if it brings her to the same place it brings you, then it doesn't matter if she called it God along the way or not. There couldn't possibly be just one way, end quote. Joel Osteen, pastor of one of the largest churches in America, was asked by Larry King in an interview, what if you're Jewish, like he was, or Muslim, 
or don't accept Christ at all? Osteen answers, quote, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. Only God can judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time with people in India, and I don't know a lot about their religion, but I know that they love God. I've seen their sincerity, end quote. This is not what Jesus said. In Matthew 7, 13, he said the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. That narrow way, that road that Jesus talks about in John 14, 6 is through faith in Christ's finished work alone to bring a sinful man into the presence of a holy God. Now, not only is Jesus the way, verse 6 says he is also the truth. Now, we live in an age where truth is subjective. It's based on a person's perspective, their feelings, their opinions. You can be who you want to be. You can live how you want to live. The Bible, however, claims to be an objective truth. Jesus claims to be objective truth. Unchanging, unalterable reality that is the same for every man. He is the embodiment of the supreme revelation of God. In Revelation 19, 11, it says that his name is faithful and true. It is his name. In John 1, it says that Moses came and he brought the law. But now Jesus has come and he brings grace and truth. He is truth and not error. He is right and not wrong. He is honest and not deceitful. He is straight and not crooked. He is sincere and not misleading. He is dependable and not disloyal. He is the whole truth about God given to man. He is the reality of God's plan to save sinners. He is all of God's gifts. He is all of God's grace. Jesus is the truth. And thirdly, he is the life. Jesus is the life. Our world is fixated on living longer, but death comes to all sons and daughters of Adam regardless. Is that not the curse of Genesis 3? That from dust we have come and to dust we shall return. Separated from God by our sin, we are alive physically but dead spiritually. And left to ourselves, this spiritual death remains forever. But enter Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, into the dusty streets of Palestine. John 1.4 says that in him was life. Psalm 36.9 says that he is the fountain of life. Death did not stop him. The grave could not hold him. He is the victor. He is the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. Revelation 21.4 says he will wipe away every tear and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And in John 11.25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And if you read that passage of 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about the resurrection, right in the middle of it in verse 26, it says the last enemy that will be abolished, listen, is death. Revelation 20 goes on to say that death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. You can live for money. You can live for material possessions. You can live for sexual desires. You can live for all that this world has to offer, but they are shadows and dust. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is the life. And he answers our greatest question, what is the way to God? 
How can I get to the Father? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. We need not worry about trying to find our way. We need not search high and low for what is true. We need not take elixirs and pills and eat cauliflower to try to avert death. (laughs) Jesus comes to our world and he answers life's greatest question. Are you weary, Christian? Have you lost your way this morning? Is your heart troubled, unsettled, emotional distress bubbling? Your Savior wants to speak to you directly. He says, I can be trusted. I keep my promises. And I answer life's greatest questions. And in all this, he proves that comfort comes from Christ. So I give the ball back to you this morning. It's in your court. Knowing the greatness of your Savior and his care for you, will you, according to the psalmist, cease striving and know that I am God? Will you cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you? Will you find your comfort in the Savior? We need to return to Charlie. He's still sitting in that barn uh, in darkness with those other people waiting for Verna. He began thinking about his life sitting there on that wooden bench, thinking of his decision to trust the Acme Travel Agency. He looked at the people seated around him, and before long, he concluded that he had been played a fool, and he descended into a rage. He stood up, walked to the door, pushed it open angrily, stepped outside, and went to throw it closed for just a split second as the door was closing, he saw a flash of light from inside the barn. It was Verna. The sun was out. The palm trees were swaying in a light breeze. There were people on a beautiful sandy beach laughing and playing. And then the door shut. As quickly as he could, he unlatched that rusty barn door and he threw it open once again. To his dismay, the vision of Verna was gone. The bark barn was dark and empty, and he was left alone in the night. He raced back to the travel agency. He presented his ticket to the proprietor. The man took it, slowly counted out $11.17, handed it back to him, and said, you left this on the counter the last time you were here, and I don't know why. The story ends with Charlie telling a friend, no one gets a second chance to go. I've tried and I've tried, and I've tried. Friend, you have but one chance, one opportunity, one way to be made right with God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Don't miss it. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, and he stands ready to make you right and to forgive you of your sins. For those in Christ, our hope is not a sandy beach and palm trees swaying in the breeze. It is the promise of being with our Savior forever. And in our moments of trouble, we are reminded that comfort comes from Christ. When we trust him, 
when we cling to his promises and when we hold to his provision for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time to be in your word. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. Thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices. Thank you that you, while we were still sinful, sent your son and demonstrated your love to us. That on the cross, Jesus bore our sin, took our penalty, and made us right with you. We are so thankful, and it's in him that we cling to, and in him that we trust. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.